0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 20th, 2020, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella.
2: Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein.
3: Good evening, folks.
1: And we have a special guest rogue on the show this week, David Chaseman. David, welcome to the Skeptics Guide.
3: Great to be here. It's an honor.
1: So, David, you're a patron of the SGU, and uh, as that's why you're you're here with us. But you, we were just talking before the show how it's amazing like all of the people that we've had on the show, all of the guest rogues who are patrons, have been awesome. Like they're experts in something, right? So. You are like a nuclear engineer or something, right?
3: Yeah. So I did um, two and a half years in the submarine Navy as a submarine officer, got qualified on two different uh, reactor designs. Ooh, wow. So there was uh, the S5W reactor design, which is what they use for training you on land before they put you in a, you know, a boat that's designed to sink but could sink really far if you don't do things right. And then uh, – Qualified on S9G, which is the reactor of choice for the Virginia class submarines, and I was actually based in Groton, Connecticut. Yeah, right, right at your doorstep. So, yeah, did that for about two and a half years. Got medically disqualified, so I had to cross-rate into information professional, which does Navy networks, radio communications, and cryptography for basically to keep communications uh, secure on the Allied side, so the blue mm-hmm. side, and so. That's that's basically what I did. did that for six years and then punched out to work for a couple startups, which uh, is a serious games company and an AI company. So that's oh. what I do now. Cool. Wow, nice. very cool.
0: Where's my thorium reactor? <laughs> yeah.
3: uh, actually, we... <laughs> <laughs> we may get to that later. Yes. Who knows? Yeah. Actually, <laughs> cool. yeah, so you're
1: you're gonna be talking about some nuclear reactor news item later on in the in the news segment. So how has the uh the COVID nineteen pandemic been for your industry?
3: Uh for the most part, we were really resilient to it. So our office was designed from the beginning to be like the actually the first company that I started with was remote work from the start, which was a huge win for me in terms of quality of life. And then the second company that I got hired onto, and I work for both concurrently, is designed to be an in-office company, but I was grandfathered in as remote because I live in another state. Oh, mm-hmm. nice. So I'm very lucky and very fortunate that it didn't affect my life too much and particularly my industry too much, at least within our company. So
1: let's, let's talk a little bit about COVID-19. We've been giving the update every week. Uh, we'll, we'll start with the numbers. We were just over 5 million cases worldwide, 329,000 deaths. It it's, looks like we're going up by about a million cases a week now, you know, last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, a million US, cases a week? You mean globally? Yeah. Globally, globally. yeah, of course. Globally. Yeah. Yeah. globally. Identifying yeah, in the, a million. In the U.S., uh, we were at 92,000 deaths. Of course, this will be higher by the time the show comes out. There's a little bit of a downtrend. But I think we mentioned either last week or the week before that that's uh, entirely because New York State peaked early and it's on the downward trend. If you factor out New York State, the rest of the U.S. is actually still on the increase. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, you know, at some point we have to be getting to the other side of this, you know, this first wave. Yeah, the uh, problem is
4: now that we're reopening kind of across the country, you know, a lot of uh, experts are saying there's probably going to be a a quick second wave just from yeah. all of the social distancing, relaxing. Is it better to oh. have
0: that second wave come earlier or, or have it no. come later?
4: Well, it's not It's not like, oh, a second wave is bound to come. Until we have a vaccine, this is going to keep happening. We're nowhere near herd immunity. So yeah. like as soon as you relax social distancing, more people are going to get sick. It's just how it works. And I wanted to correct, if that's okay, Steve, something that – because a few people reached out um, or maybe not correct, but clarify. A few people reached out because last week I made an offhand comment about – and I think this might be what the people who reached out were referring to – about the fact that there seems to be a correlation between states that are relaxing social distancing and obviously rates increasing, and that a lot of those states are southern states or are more um, conservative states. I wasn't talking about individual people. Um, I think across the board, the the mentality on the show, we've sometimes been a little less careful when we say that people want to get back to work because of isolation fatigue, and that's where a lot of this drive is coming from. And we maybe might have made that seem like that was a partisan issue of course people that are struggling financially across the political spectrum are like ready to get back to work but what the point i was making is that at a policy level like at a state level we're seeing that those are where the correlations are not that individuals want to the
1: other thing i, th- I think that we that uh, we mentioned in that conversation was the fact that the protests are mm-hmm. largely do or they're not so they're they're like um, Turf? What do you call that? Astroturf kind of movements? They're not yeah. really gra- oh, I mean, grassroots. They're not. They're I mean, not I'm sure that, yeah, yeah I'm sure there are some people who are legitimate, like grassroots conspiracy theorists out there who are part of those protests. But we're not talking about just somebody who is, you know, pushing back against the idea of continued isolation because it's really financially killing them. We're talking about the people with guns and and signs, you know, having armed protests against the government.
4: That those yeah, and saying demonstrations that this is a mark on their liberty.
1: Yeah, I mean those demonstrations, we know that that those are more orchestrated.
4: They're making political statements for yeah, sure. Yeah, but we we,
1: we were that. we were not trying to say that anybody who is like questioning, like how long do we have to do this lockdown? You know, while they're struggling financially, that it was somehow political or orchestrated or whatever. So just to clarify that, but we are getting into this transition phase now. You know, where we're mm-hmm. having a serious conversation and we do also get you know some pushback which i think kind of misses pieces of our conversation about um it's not all about just the science of the pandemic itself we have to balance the effect on the economy because that that will kill people too uh versus the effect of the uh of the covid-19 itself but here's the thing no one is saying that we're just going to sh- shut down indefinitely or yeah. err on the even err on the side of shutting down we want to ca- carefully calibrate you know exactly how to shut down and and how and when to open up where there's good ways to do it and not and not good ways to do it the, the uh, and again I will reinf- uh, reinforce however that nobody knows ultimately no, we we haven't been here before this is the first time we're doing this i don't think anybody could say that we yeah we have cl- a clear map on exactly how to do this we're feeling our way with just you know logic and evidence as best as we can but without yeah really the experience to know what the right thing to do is. So, you know, what, what I'm hearing that I think makes the most sense, and these are the, I think, a lot of the recommendations coming from the CDC, et etc., is that uh, you want to um, use some kind of metric, you know, like declining numbers of cases, admi- uh, hospital admissions, deaths over a period of time to say okay, then we could start opening up. You open up gradually, and you monitor how what effect that's having. If the gradual opening up starts to cause another spike in cases, then you got to shut down again. And then also continuing to use hand washing, masks, and social distancing while we're opening up. And then finally, we need testing and contact tracing in order to do targeted isolation. Atul uh, Gawande had a good, you know, uh, wrote a good article about it. because He's mm-hmm. at Harvard. Yeah. He said, "Listen, we have our process. You know, the process is: every day you have to indicate whether or not you're having any symptoms. You get your temperature tested. If you have anything, then you get tested for COVID-19, and you stay away from work until you test negative. If you're positive, then that you obviously you have it. Then you're in isolation for whatever two weeks. So they they are." you know, being very, very careful. We're doing very similar things at Yale as well. I got my temperature taken every time I walk into my clinic, for example. Everyone is wearing a mask. Uh, they're wiping down everything between every patient. We're, we're going to be opening up our clinic next week and because Connecticut is, is opening up. And um, we I just got a big email. Here's our protocol, this long, elaborate protocol about how we're going to do social distancing in the clinic, fewer patients, you know, wash, wipe down Longer times, wiping down between every every patient, et cetera. You know, we're, we're going to be doing more. Continue to do telehealth for those that we can. It's a process. We're not just going back to business as usual right. before the the pandemic. I can are you, a clinic.
4: Yeah. You know, yeah. like you're a medical facility where you obviously have the know-how. You have access to the tests. You have access to all of the necessary PPE. Like it's going to take time before a. The hair salon is able to do this, you know, it can't all just be like, everything just opens up on the same day and it's pandemonium. people are going to get sick. Yeah, but I
5: need a haircut.
4: I know,
3: right? (laughs) One of the things that I think is going to be sort of a hard truth that we're going to have to accept is that regardless of what we end up doing in the long run until this is over, we're... Hindsight is always going to make it look like we did something wrong. There's always yeah. going to be families yeah. that think that we waited too long to reopen and people that lost their jobs because of it. And there will also be people who lost family members that think that we should have kept the controls longer. And those people will exist in, at the same time. And. Mm-hmm. It'll always look like we did something wrong. Yeah, Yeah, and the sad
4: thing is, um, you know, we talked about this once on the show, I know, but we've gotten an email since asking if there's a name for this kind of like um, cognitive bias or this fallacy where basically you look – it's like Y2K. You look at a lack of things being worse and you say, oh, look, it wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be when really it's because of the – actions that we're taking are preventing yeah. it from being worse.
1: But it's it's part of hindsight bias. You're looking right. with information that you didn't have initially. Right. But it's so almost
4: like it's hard to measure a lack of something. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's like people say, "Oh, look, we didn't lose as many lives as we thought we were going to." So obviously we shouldn't have been that worried. And it's like, "No, because we were worried, we did all the things we needed to do to prevent that loss of life."
5: Right. Yeah. Or you could say or you could say, "Oh, look, the model predicted 2 million dead and we only had 200,000. The models are are inaccurate." Yeah. Like, "No, because you you took steps based on the model, so then everything changes."
4: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So the other thing to to point out, and I think we mentioned this, but just to reinforce it, you know, a lot of economists as well as medical experts are saying, you know, ter- opening up the economy to restarting the economy is not the, the, the overused metaphor. It's not like flipping on a switch. Mm-hmm. That the whole point is people are not going to necessarily listen to what the government is saying if the government yeah. is pushing to open up too early. Of yeah. You have to make people feel safe. Even though it might be legal to go to the hairdresser, people still might not go yes, because so they don't want to die for their hairdo. Yeah. So you, how do ways, you so. how do you make people feel confident? You have to actually decrease You know the numbers. It, you know, it has to actually work. You can't just you can't make the choice. You can't choose the economy over the pandemic because if the pandemic is still raging, people are not going to do things. They're not yeah. going to go out.
4: And that's a big part. Also, the flip side of that is a big part of living in a free society where we have, you know, the right to choose. And we have a lot of these constitutional protections that take care of our privacy and our safety. I mean, I I just recently watched a doc about Wuhan and about um, kind of the early stages in China. And because everybody there is on WeChat, the way that they reopen so quickly is that they have regions in the city that are barricaded with active police enforcement. And people have to show a tag in their WeChat. So it's this is like pure contract tracing. It's kind of amazing. You are either green, yellow, or red, because based on your GPS status, they know when you've been within close proximity to somebody who tests positive within a certain period of time. And once that happens, you flip from green to yellow. And once you're Mm -hmm. yellow, you can't go certain places until you've quarantined for two more weeks. And mm-hmm. then, but if you're actively, you know, test positive, then you're red. So your movements are affecting other people's movements. And the fact that they have this, like, what we think of as almost like scary black big mirror, brother, mm-hmm. big brother. But that's how they can actually do such like brilliant tracing and prevent more infection. We don't really have that option in our society. And because mm-hmm. of that, a lot of what we're doing is on the honor system.
1: Yeah, that's true. But, but, you know, we can also be done sort of at the workplace level, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. which can be extremely effective. I Also, another sort of significant update in the last week that I wrote about on Neurologica, there were actually four fairly large studies published of hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19. And they were all negative. One of them was a actually a, a prospective controlled you know randomized trial it wasn't blinded but it was randomized and controlled and then the other three were retrospective but they were large so there were two one in New York state one in uh, in a center in New York City you know both with over 1400 patients comparing hydroxychloroquine with and without azithromycin versus usual care no benefit, none whatsoever for any of these four studies. In fact, if anything, there was a little bit of a trend negative, but um, it wasn't, nothing was statistically significant. But that is important because you can't even say, oh, if a, a bigger study would have shown a benefit. No, it's actually trending negative. Wow. Meaning it's, so there wasn't even like a trend to, to it being helpful. And there was, there was a meta-analysis of all the studies to date. Also published, they're publishing like every week. They're updating the meta analysis of all the published data about hydroxychloroquine, and again, negative. They're basically mm-hmm. just no data that, yeah, and not, well, not just negative,
4: but, but side effects too, oh. right? Like not just negative
0: side effects and depletion of the supply.
1: Yeah, so depletion. So for people who need it, like for their lupus, are having a harder time getting it. Uh, we know that it can cause dangerous heart arrhythmias in the extreme. Although I think that physician, this is. These studies were not like people taking it at home. These were in hospitals. Right. So, and you should so know, monitored. And, and, yeah. Yes, and in some of the studies, people were stopped. They were taken off the drug because oh, they, they had did. EKG changes. They started to yeah. Sure. Yeah. So of course, if they were not if they were not being monitored, they they could have died as a side effect. Sure. So yeah, the, the, it's basically all risk no benefit is what the data is showing at this point.
4: Well, and the thing is we there is a drug do, is showing positive benefits. And so you know, if our world leaders are going to double down <laughs> on something. It's a kind of a weird thing to put his money on, I think, because there actually is an antiviral that so far is showing some positive benefits.
1: Well, I think, I know, that's the thing. It's, it's like weird. It, it's it's like, so clear. I mean, it, when I wrote about it, I said, here's all, it's uh, remdesivir, by the way. Remdesivir, the, the, yeah. The, the, there's, here's like what all the politicians were saying. And here's what all the experts were saying. You know, all the experts were like, We have to be cautious. We don't know. We have to study it. You should not take it outside of a controlled setting. Because when when politicians put their nickel down, now they have something politically invested Mm -hmm. in it. And they can't just listen to the science. Now it's a politically – so essentially whether or not hydroxychloroquine works for COVID-19, it's a 100% scientific question, but it was made into a political question. And that's bad. And now they're doubling down on it and tripling down on it when the yeah. evidence is coming back negative. You know, you know, whereas the experts, they don't, they want it to work. You know, of course, it would be great if we had a effective drug that could save people's lives, get them off the ventilator, It would be huge. But it just the evidence is negative. We have to call it like we see it. You yeah, know when the I mean? outcome
4: is life and death, why would you? I, that's the one time when you can't fall victim to this. Like, oh, I'm never wrong. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm just going to keep pushing. It's like, come on, guys. Yeah. Well, Sorry, the conspiracy
2: Ken. theories are flying now. I mean, people are actually oh, believing. Yeah. Oh God, yes. I actually said this to someone on Facebook. I have to admit.
4: Um, <laughs> oh God, when's know, he going to learn? <laughs> who,
2: who are they? In quotes, because it's like they are making money off of these drugs, and the, you know we can't trust them. And I'm like, who? The entire medical community? You know, like what? Do you, what's your premise here? That you're being lied to about what specifically, and who is benefiting from this? Because it's so, to me, it's so obvious, obviously, just a rush to who's the next president going to be. Like, this is about getting elected. All, all, of the, oh, yeah. like, all the political nonsense that we're hearing is posturing for the next election. But the it medical. It doesn't
4: even pe- make sense. They're, like, they're, the, they're, the arguments don't make sense.
2: Mm-hmm. Of course not. They, they never do, Kara. The problem is like, that in this circumstance, unlike so many other circumstances, people are dying. Because of decisions that that politics are making, you know, politicians are making.
4: It's so obvious. It's so. But it's like if I were a conspiracy theorist, Jay, I would be like, what is Trump getting out of doubling down so hard on hydroxychloroquine? Like, Mm -hmm. what's going on behind the scenes with that, you know? And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so I'm kind of like, I just think he's, you know, doubling down on not wanting to be wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's all it is. But the truth is, like, if I were a conspiracy theorist, that would be the thing that I'd be sniffing around. (laughs)
3: and one of the things is uh, I think that having worked with uh, people in government offices before it's they they needed to have an answer of some kind, and they just latched onto the first one. So it happened mm-hmm. to be hydroxychloroquine. And then, as uh, Steve mentioned, like it's really hard in politics to go back on uh, your initial stance on something. So that's they put their nickel down, and then they hold it down, and then when they say they need a dime, they say, "Well, that nickel's fine." So uh, yeah, that's, so that's why uh, you should
1: put your nickel down on whatever the science says. Yeah,
3: yeah that's that your, right? it's yeah. always <laughs> your best
0: bet.
1: It gives you so much flexibility too, because if the evidence comes out wrong, it's like well, the evidence is pregnant. I listen to the evidence. You know, right. it's like a get, it's a get out of jail free card. But by giving, by putting your nickel down on an answer that before we have it, like you're setting yourself up for being wrong. You I know,
0: mean, yeah. oh gosh. And that's what happened. History is replete with, the, with that. Yep. With for examples. better or for
3: worse, we have governors taking up that role where right. uh, other offices may not be representing as well.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. If you're lucky yep. enough to be in a state with a governor who is taking up that role, yeah.
5: Yep. Real quick, one other bit of news that came out that was interesting: CDC is now de-emphasizing uh, catching COVID nineteen from surfaces and stressing even more it's person to person. So it's, more, it's It seems like it's more of a person to person thing, and surfaces is not as involved That's as they once as they once thought. Huh? As they yeah. once still, it's still a risk, but not. It's yes. Still so wash your hands. It's the main. Wash the your main hands. Diner. Wear a face mask. Keep I wouldn't change out. any of that stuff.
1: Right.
0: <laughs>
2: So watch your kids, uh, watch your wife.
4: But yeah, you Wipe, don't have to, like, yeah. irradiate your groceries. <laughs> yeah. yeah. home, yeah, right.
0: Go into the decan- decontamination booth I built yeah. at home. All
1: right, we're going to try to get through six news items. So let's, wow. let's push forward. Do you, have you guys ever used an online symptom checker?
2: Sure.
0: No, I ha- I haven't. Yeah, I, I, seriously, I'm, that is a serious. I endeavor. asked my wife Jennifer what's going yeah. on because she knows a lot about that stuff. She's your symptom Sim- checker. Yeah, she's my symptom checker.
1: So there are a number of them. There, you know, there, some of them are run by things like WebMD or uh, even like the Mayo Clinic. And you go in there, you enter like your your sex, your age, and then you list your. your they have various ways that you can enter your symptoms from uh, sort of a. a A list or sometimes even just free typing, you know, describing your own symptoms. And then they give you a list of possible diagnoses.
4: And you always end up with cancer.
1: So, well, the question, so there's a recent study where they looked at 27 different diagnostic sites, you know, um, these symptom checkers and to see how accurate they were. So they had like, you know, entered symptoms that were based on a known result, right? They knew what the disease they were going for. They entered the symptoms of that disease, and then they said, "What list of diagnoses did the symptom checkers come up with?" So I don't know if you guys read my article, but if you haven't, just guess what percentage of the time, in the aggregate, all you know, on average, all of them together, what percentage of the time did they come up with the correct diagnosis as the top choice oh, no. versus
2: versus
5: top three versus top ten? Four for one. <laughs>
4: 10%. There we go,
2: Steve. I read your article, and I will still guess incorrectly.
4: <laughs> I still do, <don't> <laughs>
2: but it was very <laughs> extraordinarily low. They, they they are accurate.
4: Top yeah. one, top three, top ten. Yeah, five percent, thirty percent, sixty percent. That's really low. Might not be that bad.
1: You're a little pessimistic at the low end, but pretty good yeah. at the high end. So, oh. uh, the so for the top one, it was thirty six percent. Got it. Okay. As a, the first diagnosis. Which is actually not bad, I will say. Uh-huh. For a robot, getting getting the <laughs> getting it the the correct it kind of depends on what diagnosis you put in there. But getting the top one, it's not even that important. It just has to be in the list of things that you're going to work up, right? Mm-hmm. Top top three is kind of important. There was fifty-two percent. Mm. And then here's the worst one. Top 10 was 58%. So it didn't oh, no. improve that much. Wow. Yeah, so that's the one I, that concerned me the most. I bet 42% of the time the correct diagnosis was not even in the top 10. That means you missed it. You and completely... were these like common
4: things or were they rare things? Yeah. Both. That's a whiff. It was both.
1: Okay. Very, it was, very. Yeah. Just... I went on a few of these in preparation for my article. And I you know, gave myself various neurological diseases that I'm very familiar with typed in the symptoms just to see how they did. For really common things, like when I said, all right, I have – well, I said, okay, for one, I get, all right, I'm somebody with a cluster headache, and I entered in symptoms of a cluster headache. And their first diagnosis was migraine. The second one was cluster. But, you okay. know, yeah. there's not okay. really much else that has those symptoms. That I was expecting. If it doesn't get this one, it's broken.
0: That was the control, basically. Oh,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then I gave myself something slightly – uh, uncommon, neuralgia peristetica, which is basically a pinched nerve in your thigh, right? Not that big a deal. Uh, total <sighs> whiff. It had n- didn't wasn't even in the top ten. <sighs> the first diagnosis was was uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, <clears throat> which was not Jeez. you know given that That's I scary put my agent is was not a good. Was not even a good guess. That would not be number one on my on my list if I were coming up with a differential diagnosis, and it, and it completely missed the actual diagnosis. So, but anyway, that was that's anecdotal. But that kind of fits with you know what uh, what they were saying. So I think that um, it's, these numbers, however, are not surprising for for a number of reasons. which I'll get into in a second. But the but and perhaps more concerning than that was the triage advice that these sites give. So. In other words, it, uh, more important than telling you what you might have is telling you what to do. Like, should you right. go to the emergency room? Should you make an appointment with your primary care doctor? Uh, and there, um, the the advice was, was, the triage advice was deemed appropriate only 63% of the time.
4: Oof, that's dangerous. Yeah. And was it too much or too little? Like, was it more like false positive triage F- advice or false negative? Yeah. Because that, that would be dangerous.
1: Yeah, it was – so it was more false positive. So they were okay, sending a lot of people right. – they were erring on the side of sending people to the emergency so room. So what's the oh, problem, Steve? Was, I guess that's still But they, made, they did make both kinds of mistakes. That was just they made far more of that
5: kind of mistake. Well, Steve, what kind of systems are they using? Was it some sort of expert system? That's a good um, question.
1: Know. Every kind because they just – they did 27 different ones. So actually, I'm sorry. Just to correct no. those numbers, overall, the triage advice was only accurate 49 percent of the time. It was 63, though, appropriately going to the emergency room, and 30 to, for non-urgent. Mm-hmm. So it was much less accurate for non-urgent than for urgent care. But overall, it was 49%, so less than half. So, Bob, the some of the systems use AI and some don't. The ones that do use AI, AI did much better than the ones sure, that didn't. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, so that that's a good question. So the the range was 12% to 61% with the AIs more towards the 61% end of the spectrum. Mm. So so the authors were pointing out the fact that first of all there is zero regulation for these things, right? These anyone could do this, put up their own symptom checker, you know. There's no quality control.
4: Is there a difference then between like a Mayo Clinic and like a WebMD?
1: Well, you would expect so, but they're you know they they're both kind of chumpy, actually, in my experience. But mm, the interesting. uh, okay, yeah, so it's it's more you know whether or not the software itself was more sophisticated. So even you know, so yeah, you would think that better institutions would have a better application, but that's not necessarily true. Yeah, so there's a couple of of technical variables in here. One is just the, the sophistication of the software itself, but the other is the information that's put into it. You know, who's maintaining it? Who is? Who are the experts that are pro, that are putting in the data? And is garbage it in, garbage in, garbage out? Yeah, is it being yeah. kept up to date? So these systems are tricky. So here's the thing: so any clinician, anyone who's in the diagnosis business, knows exactly why these computer programs are doing so poorly. And that's because patients are terrible at communicating yes. information. <laughs> right. So so one of the caveats when I was testing it, it's like I'm a physician who knows how to describe my symptoms, you know. So I would expect to do a lot better than somebody with the same thing who is not a clinician, who who is meant to maybe not know what words to use. And, and I tell you, people confuse words all the time. They call it, they call numbness, weakness and weakness, numbness, and things like that. But oh. uh but not only that You know, patients come to you with a narrative about their own illness, right? They Mm -hmm. have an idea of what's going on with them about their history. And they give you totally biased information that's filtered through their own narratives that they already have. And that actually affects their memory. We've spoken about this in multiple ways on the show before, like the telescoping memory. And when you think A cause B, you bring them together in time. And they often answer questions relatively like meaning i'll say well how long have you had that headache they said since the car accident they don't tell me they don't say three years they say they've anchored it to an event that may be true it may completely not be true they may have decided six months later maybe it was that accident and then they remember it as being starting after the accident so they are anchoring as well but anyway you've got to figure out what the patient's narrative of their disease, then you have to ask them questions in multiple different ways to sort of deconstruct the objective facts from that narrative and then reconstruct it as best you can in a a medical way. It's a very dynamic investigative process, and it takes a lot of insight into how people communicate, how they think, and you also have to individualize it throughout, you know, your therapeutic relationship with the patient. Trying to do that by typing symptoms into an, an algorithm, it doesn't work, right? It's just yeah. not going to happen. Now, if you have something really basic, like carpal tunnel syndrome, then yeah, you know, that's, a, you know, you should, it should be able to do that. But otherwise, you know, it would be really, really challenging, you know, to do it in, in the sort of dumb way that most of these algorithms do rather than the dynamic, way that a clinician does.
4: Steve, do you think it would be, it would split somewhere down the middle if it were, you know, a lot of my doctors have these things where you can log in to see your test results and stuff. So it's like a secure and it's got your medical mm-hmm. records all tied up. So let's say you were logged in and now they have access to your history and all your medical records. And then the algorithm utilizes that. Would you, you think that that would probably really improve outcomes, right? Yes,
1: it would. Absolutely. Absolutely. A couple other observations here. One is, how do people use, why are people using symptom checkers? And I don't know. I'd like to see that data, but I do, what I can tell you is my experience as a physician because people use me as their symptom checker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> True, your friends, guilty. family, acquaintances. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah. That's well, fine. And that's fine to do that. But what I'm talking about is why are they doing that? And and my experience is people fall into three categories. One is just their you know, people just want more information, you know, and they and they don't really have an agenda. They just wanna, they want more information about something they're experiencing. But often people have one of two agendas. One is they're looking for permission not to go to the emergency room or not to seek medical attention. Yep. You know, they're like, yeah, well, I ran it by Steve and he wasn't too concerned, so I'm not going to do anything, you know. Uh, they're basically looking for permission, you know. And then the mm-hmm. second group are people who are have health anxiety and are looking for stuff to be anxious about. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so like putting in benign symptoms and coming back with multiple sclerosis is not a good thing if you're on the anxious end of the spectrum. It, and that's something that you also have to figure out in the therapeutic interaction. Like what are people trying to get out of this interaction? And you have to calibrate to the patient. So, but the other thing is like could, what would make this work optimally? you know, what could make it work just technically work better? Forget about how it's being used. That's a separate question. I think the the thing that we would need to do, I think the AI systems is the way to go, but we need to close the loop, meaning that you need to train the system so that you have at some time, there are some subset of patients who are inputting their symptoms. And then at some point, if they get an actual diagnosis, that is then being fed into the system, so it knows if it was accurate or not. Then it becomes like the Mechanical Turk. Have you guys played sure. with that?
5: Mm-hmm. The, where yeah. it's just
1: think think of anyone in you know the universe, fiction or nonfiction, and then with a surprisingly few number of questions, it guesses who you're thinking of. But that's because yeah. it, it gets the feedback. It knows when it's correct, and in then in the and that information gets fed into the algorithm. That could work really well.
4: So I'm then, surprised it's, they're it's, not doing that now. Yeah, that nobody's really doing that.
1: So it's like, how are patients? How do patients describe their symptoms when they have this entity? Mm. Uh, and then, you know, and then all, it's also in medicine. You don't have to guess correct. You just need to have the correct answer somewhere in the top you know, tier of possibilities that are above top the five. line. Yeah, whatever, above the line where you're going to work it up. You know, that's what it really matters. And so it's actually easier. You want a differential diagnosis. I often tell this to medical students, what do you think is going on here? But I don't want you to tell me what the diagnosis is. I don't want you to guess the diagnosis. I want you to tell me all possible diagnoses, why you think it's more or less likely, and what you think we should do. So that's where we need to get to with this, and this could work at, as an expert system, meaning providing information to a physician, not providing information to a, a, a you know a patient other than triage, which is why I was actually more concerned about that
3: being so inaccurate
1: so but yeah, I don't know that maybe it's happening out there somewhere I'm just not aware of it, and it wasn't tested in this study.
3: And the devil's advocate argument to kind of uh, caution against that, uh, or not caution against it, but to be mindful of, is in AI... As, peop- as was mentioned earlier you know you kind of have sort of a crapping crap out and also as mentioned earlier some of these measures are completely subjective
1: mm-hmm. and what that
3: ends up being in AI terms is what uh, I, as I understand it is called a noisy feature and a noisy feature can sort of make it more difficult to predict what you are trying to predict so some problems yeah. just because of the data that is provided and how much noise there is in the different features can result in poor predictions in general mm-hmm. um, and And what is, could also, though that's not a nail in the coffin for any particular piece of data, Uh, what is a trend in AI going on right now is uh, uh, trying to get away from what's known as black box AI, where you throw in data and it throws out a prediction and that's it and you don't get much information out of it. Interpretable AIs and AIs that provide some amount of explanation as to why they predicted things and or how sure they are can sort of provide uh, a better sort of Operator aid. So a physician looks at a list of top ten, and then the top choice says, "Oh, by the way, I'm only about twenty five percent certain at most of all of these things." Well, that's exactly how that's
1: exactly how diagnoses works, and that's what that's what I'm saying. That's what an expert system should be producing. And so, what we do in medicine is we have what we call predictive value. Right? If a patient clutches their chest with a closed hand. What is the predictive value of that that they're having a heart attack? We could put a number on that. I don't know off the top of my head what that number is, but that's you know you could put numbers on things like that. Um, and it's not just test results; it's also how people describe their symptoms, or what they do, or how they look, or whatever. If they have a certain demographic history, et cetera. So there basically would be two ways for the for an AI diagnostic system like this to work. One would be just in programming it with with data from research about signs and symptoms and their predictive values. And then the other would be the mechanical Turk approach. You feed back, if you feed it back the accuracy of the answers that it was previously putting out, and then it refines what it does based upon that feedback. And those two things are not mutually exclusive as far as I know. I mean, you could just use them together uh, to make it more powerful and but the but yeah for a physician you know providing expert information it absolutely has to say why it's saying what it's saying and uh what the error bars are. Again, remember, it doesn't have to give me an answer. It just has to give me a list of possibilities that I then explore, you know?
4: Yeah, the scary thing is like what you mentioned, it's it's less about, oh, did I get the diagnosis right? And it's more about based on these symptoms, should I seek medical attention right away? And yeah. how do you give that kind of feedback? Like it's one thing to go back and say, hey, it was MS. It's another thing to go back and say, hey, if I hadn't gone in, I would have died. Like that how do you quantify that?
1: Yeah, I you know I think it would need to be done in a setting where you have Experts who can feed it back, right? The, the information that it can use to refine its recommendations. So, Steve, the,
2: these programs could most definitely be the cause of people dying. It, well, yeah, but you know, before the internet, people would get
1: books at the bookstore that were symptom checkers. You know, so hmm. this is not new yeah. to the internet. You know, it's got to be a way. Be so careful, and I, that's why I'm very careful. Like when people ask me medical questions. I, right. I'm careful, very careful. to, first of all, figure out what their agenda is, and to not say anything that they can use in, in a way to make to make poor decisions for themselves. Right. You know, but uh, also by the way, Jay. you know who you know who did that to me all the time was Perry. In Perry, what way? He, man, he was always looking for permission not to seek medical attention. God. Gotcha. The, and the quote unquote funniest example of this, it's like scary funny. He literally calls me up like at midnight one night. And it's like, Steve, I can't breathe when I lay down. You know, oh, is that bad?
0: Uh, that's that's <laughs> bad. You
1: know, yeah. He couldn't breathe. Like, the guy couldn't breathe. So I don't need to. Like, yeah, I, I'll be fine, right? And literally, he literally would have been dead if he didn't go to the emergency room. Oh, you know, he, 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 he would have gone to sleep and woken up dead, <laughs> right? <Just saying. laughs> well, this, is. So I was like, Perry, go to the freaking emergency room right now. And he's like giving me pushback. I'm like, you, why did you call me?
4: You know, yeah, to, to hear what because he you know because he knew he, he knew he needed yeah, to go yeah, yeah.
1: he knew but anyway the real data I want to see is what's the effect of people right. using these things and that's be hard real world data to get but that's what I'd really like to see oh that's right because if if somebody it's hard to infer it's hard to if, infer
4: if it says go to the ER and then they just don't then yeah. there's also that like how do you even know
1: right 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 all right let's move on Jay, you have some big news coming Jay. up. About the
2: about the crew dragon. You talking to me? i talking to you? <laughs> yeah. I don't have I a problem dragons, with you. You don't have to give me that attitude. All right. So I, I don't know about you guys. I have been waiting for this for a very, very long time. So we are, as we record this, we're one week away. So it's going to happen on May 27th that SpaceX will launch their first crewed flight. We're going to have two astronauts, two ASA astronauts, Doug wow. Hurley and Bob... Benkin, uh, B-E-H-N-K-E-N, right, Benkin And Bob Benkin will be taking the Crew Dragon space capsule to the ISS. And they'll be riding on top of the Falcon 9 rocket. And this whole thing will launch from NASA's Space Kennedy Center in Florida. You know, just a little interesting fact. This one is for Bob. Bob, when was the last time the U.S. sent a crewed mission into outer
0: space? And it's a decade ago, I 2010, think. 2010? 2011.
2: 2011. Good job. So this new mission is called Demo Two and its primary function is to test the dragon capsule. They're gonna now we've tested it. They've tested the hell out of it.
4: Wait, then why did they call it demo? I wouldn't want to be a first crewed person on something called demo. Yeah.
1: It's actually not a it's not technically even a mission. It's, it's,
2: a, it's test. a test
1: test. It's it's the it's the last test flight. Before the first crewed mission, which is later this year, right. they're hoping for. So, oh, wait, does that mean they're going to up? No, come no, they, back? they'll go Sound up. Like it's a test Yeah, flight. they'll go <laughs> up
2: and they can be anywhere from a month to six months up there. So, NASA has paid SpaceX $2.6 billion for six crewed missions using the Dragon Capsule and Falcon 9. And by the time you hear this, the mission will have already received, been received and reviewed for flight readiness, which means that they're going through all the, like those last-minute checks. The astronauts have already been moved down to the space center. You know, they, they go through all this rigmarole to the lead-up to this, where things are, are pretty frantic, trying to make sure that all the systems are working. You know, they had to make sure the astronauts aren't sick. But I thought we would take this opportunity to talk about the Dragon Capsule Version 2 and why... This is really a landmark situation that we have going here. So first, it's specifically designed to take people and cargo to and from low Earth orbit. And it has a max capacity of seven people. So seven astronauts or seven spacefaring people would be able to go into the capsule. In this particular mission, two people are going and the capsule will only have a total of four seats for this particular mission that we're talking about. The capsule is considered partially reusable. So it's not as reusable as I initially thought, or, and I'm not even crystal clear on what the reusability is, I remember reading something that said that after 10 missions, they'd have to do a, a significant refurbishment. But I think that was hinging on the fact that the capsule would actually do a retro rocket landing, which it will not be doing. This one will definitely be, be splashing down in the ocean, which does incur more wear and tear on wow. all the components. So I think they're, they're testing a lot of other systems, and they're not going to be using the, the landing, the actual powered landing on this one for real significant reasons. And I and I actually fear that it might not be a feature moving forward, but I'm not 100% sure on that.
3: Ah,
1: They've gone back and forth on it for yep. the capsules because, uh, yeah, they, they said they're, they were going to do it. Then they said, oh, now it's, it's easier to splash down. But then it's a lot harder to re, reuse the capsules then. Is and it too risky? No, not more risky. Take? No, it's just it's just that the salt water and everything and just no, no, no. I mean, is, is yeah landing, be, landing, the dry landing. Yeah, yeah, the dry okay. landing is just harder to do, you know. And so you either need to perfect the system for a dry landing, or you do the easier water landing. The reason for the dry landing is the reusability yep, of the capsule. Yeah. So I don't know. I think there's still there's still sort of there is
2: something just so epic about the spaceship having retractable landing gear. Like it strikes a a chord in my science fiction soul. I just love it. I love the, the, the imagery. If you haven't seen it, you should look at some of the pictures or video of the, uh, the testing of the retro rockets and everything. It's really, really cool. So this, the dragon capsule has eight 16,000 pound thrust uh, per super Draco rocket engine. Right so there's 8 of those engines they're grouped in pairs. It has 5 observation windows which is really cool. And I know a lot of you guys have seen the inside of the cockpit. The cockpit is freaking amazing. It's mostly touchscreen. Uh there are analog buttons and a joystick for critical functionality, but you know most of it is uh is definitely touchscreen. There's a really cool center console. Uh it has a very spacious feel and a futuristic look. I just absolutely think this thing is is a work of art. Uh, So as of March of 2020, there are four Dragon capsules built right now. There's four of them built. I'm not exactly sure if all four are are currently ready to be used. I know, of course, one of them is, uh, but they say that there's four that are that are that are built. So they're probably like, you know, in pre-mission shape because they outfit these things specifically for each mission. So astronauts that fly in the dragon wear the custom spacesuit that I'm sure some of you have seen. These are the white ones. They have a completely different look than any other spacesuit that we've seen. These are these are specifically made per person. It isn't like medium male, medium female. This is this is Frank's spacesuit. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And custom. even absolutely custom down down to like the, the millimeter. Bespoke. Yep. Now, even though the suits are meant to be worn inside the capsule and they're they're meant to work Inside the capsule, like there, there's a synergy between the suits and the spaceship, that the astronauts could actually have a full vacuum event happen, which is pretty scary. But the spacesuits can handle that, which is great to know. So they could mm-hmm. be in outer space with these suits. Yes. I'm sure that it, there's a,
1: that's a real advantage to spacesuits. You know that they, they can
5: handle. <laughs> yeah, they can handle. Space. I like
2: that. I like that in the spacesuit.
5: Yeah, I mean you could, make it, <laughs> especially the hard could, vacuum.
2: Yeah, the hard vacuum is scary, and that's that's the thing that you want to avoid. But it can happen, you know. You know, worst things have happened.
4: Hey Jay, at the beginning you said this: the price tag that NASA was paying for four six missions, missions six right? crewed missions, six. yeah, six missions, six crewed missions was how much? It was much? two point six billion. How does that compare to shuttle missions? Like, is this cheaper? Or is it more expensive than the space shuttle was? Oh,
2: this is much cheaper than the
1: space yeah, shuttle. Yeah, no, the thing cheaper. you got to okay.
4: keep
2: in mind, Kara, is that yeah, I think SpaceX. If, if I'm correct, <laughs> SpaceX is is coming in as the least expensive of even all the new fleets that are being built. It's very affordable, and they have such a such a a wonderful reusability factor in a lot of their components. They hey Kara, they have 3D printed stuff in the in these ships. Like we're talking state mm-hmm, of the yeah. freaking mm-hmm. art. You know, like the, their technology is, is fantastic.
3: I don't really think 3D so printing print is print state of the art. Cool. To put it into some perspective too, in terms of costs for other things in our, mm-hmm. our government. Uh, 2. <laughs> point yeah. something billion dollars is about the cost of yeah. one submarine and the united states has a fleet of 66 yeah. of them right now and wow. how how long will you
4: and
0: how long will the uh, will the submarine last for the united states that uh
3: ever? actually it quite a long time they're about 30, 30 year lifespans yeah. so so if you, you spend get, a lot yeah. of money on crew right uh, uh, mm-hmm. so the the initial cost is basically nothing compared to the lifetime of the of a craft but something yeah, to i think that, that is interesting, interesting. you know cool. something
2: that is terrestrial could be so much more for are, you know, phenomenally more expensive than something that's going to go into outer space.
4: Well, it's not terrestrial. Well, it's going –
2: it's leaving the earth. It's aquatic. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean. It's – it's it's it's, uh, on it's normal you know yes, normal okay. conditions you know even, even though it's going very deep you're not leaving the earth you're not you know strapping a rocket to your ass you are strapping a nuclear reactor to your ass though <laughs> you know, which would you rather
4: Yeah, there are a lot of comparisons between going deep into. I mean, it's in many ways just as dangerous, just as unknown, just as whatever. So
2: Jay, come on, have you ever been? In, have you
4: ever well, been not in a the submarine? good ones?
2: I've been. I haven't been in in like the modern ones. I've been in the ones that are in museums.
0: <laughs> I, I think I toured it, the Nautilus once. It,
3: it feels like a floating office building that tilts every once in a while like you really can't tell that you're in a craft on the water the only time that you can tell you're on the water at all is when you're on the surface and that's where a submarine's basically like a floating hot dog it doesn't have much stability so you Uh, rock really uh, bad on the surface but in order to to go go into one of these
4: don't you have to be trained like really trained like you have to know how to do decompression and you know like you have to know how to scuba right like deep no so ideally Mm.
3: if you are on a submarine you will never have to swim
4: (laughs) no ideally <laughs> you're right but it's not close those like, screen you know. doors so i i got to do i joke. got to do
3: an escape trainer so there if your submarine lands on a, on the bottom without imploding there is an escape yeah. procedure and about a third of people go through that escape training it's a lot of fun what uh, wait fun. So you're not two everybody...
0: miles down and you get there's an escape They're... plan for
4: that yeah but
3: there, not there everybody are.
4: gets trained on it what happens if you actually have to escape
3: well, then you have the other people there that have been trained to get you along. So there there's medical oh, reasons okay. that you can't put everybody through it. And one of them's really funny. It's basically yeah. you're in this suit. It's not like an enclosed suit that's pressurized. So you hook up to this air hose while in this airlock, and then you let all the water in. But the water is at whatever pressure and whatever depth you're at.
4: Okay. That
3: then compresses the air that's going into this suit that is not pressure tight. So you are starting to breathe in all this compressed air. And then, when you're ready to go up, you open the hatch, you release this, and then the air floods out of this suit. And because it's compressed, it's expanding as you go up. So you basically become this air rocket going straight up. And then, while you're going up, because the air is decompressing as you go up, you also have to yell at the top of your lungs the entire time because you're constantly expelling out. Oh, your lungs
5: would explode. Yeah.
3: Exactly. And so. One thing that they found out while doing this sort of training is that while you're hooked up to this tube... That certain bodily fluids in your nasal cavity will carbonate effectively. And then when you <laughs> decompress, they will decarbonate and shoot out of your nose all over the inside of the awesome. suit. And it's Amazing! To
4: clean
3: up. So a lot of people don't get to do it because they had a cold in the past couple weeks or something right. like that. Oh, uh, oh that.
5: Whoa.
4: That
3: sounds But the good crazy. news is if you go on a submarine, and really cool you get great too, food. They,
5: they
2: feed you very well, right? Isn't that true?
3: Yeah. <laughs> That's what I've yes, heard. Yes, it is. It is really, really good food. Uh, what What's cool about the escape trainer too is the risk of going from. I think it's from like zero to. It's a fifteen foot tank, but that fifteen feet uh, represents uh, a a doubling of the air volume in your lungs. Yeah, and it's actually wow. the most dangerous part of the traversal. So they keep it. They actually notate it on your record as an actual submarine escape. They don't make a distinction between a real one and a training one because the risks are the same, which is pretty cool.
2: So the only other two things I wanted to say was the dragon capsule has an emergency system to, uh, if anything goes wrong during the launch, they can press a button. I don't know if there's an actual button, but, but the, it can be called home and the emergency system has been tested and it worked very very well i remember that yeah. what does that mean well, they mean, can be
4: called home
2: well
0: it like it uh, a program goes into effect right which kind of takes everything over and, and brings them safely they back they could be up How? they could be
2: up 50 60 70 80000 feet something could tragic could happen something you know the rocket the falcon 9 can explode they the capsule has the capability to return back to the earth in, from that position
1: yeah it separates and deploys its parachutes yeah, but it also has and to f- comes down. If I, I oh,
2: you know, Steve didn't we talk down. about this okay. doesn't it have to fire rockets as well and stuff like it has to do something to to orient yeah. it and sure. get it Yeah.
4: to separate. All right, so that oh, that's right. important. That's oh, important because cool. other
2: you know previous systems d- didn't work or weren't even in place. So Crew Dragon also has and I think this one is like a no-duh a fully autonomous docking system which means that the computer can dock it to the ISS. They used to use the arm, and you know, the the, the uh, astronauts were flying it in and, and controlling things. Like you know, why not just have computers do it? So I, I guess it, it's more complicated than I understood it to be. But now it can do that. Cool. So I'm psyched. This is awesome. This is groundbreaking. You know, we're we're, we're moving into a new level of technology for space flight, and I think. Most of us alive today will see spaceflight become very commonplace.
1: Yeah, so we'll give an update next week once it actually happens, hopefully. All right, Bob, tell me about these row boots or robot what? boots.
5: Or ro- hey, what are they all about? <laughs> <laughs> robo boots. They're talking? Robo boogie? Yeah, researchers. I know, claim- shouldn't, be, shouldn't
1: it be row boots? <laughs>
5: yeah, <but> that's intense. <laughs> no, you're rowing. Robo boots. like robo boot or robot boot. So researchers claim their concept. For a novel spring based human powered robo boot could hopefully one day allow the, the fastest people to run 18 meters per second, or for the metric impaired, that's 40 miles an hour. What? So, no. Yes, this is no, so cool. Wait, how
4: fast are so, the fastest people now?
5: 24, 25 12, miles an hour? 12, 12.3 meters per second. So this this is from David Braun, is assistant professor of mechanical engineering, uh, and his students at v- at Vanderbilt Vanderbilt's Center for Rehabilitation Engineering and Assistive Technology. So this research was also recently published um, in uh, Science Advances. Uh, so for this item, of course, I saw RoboBoot in the title, and I was already hooked like a fish. But this was genuinely a really fascinating topic. So human running, the fastest human can run. Like I said, about a little over 12 meters per second. So how can you dramatically increase that using only human power? Now you might think, well, hey, they got cutting-edge running shoes, like like Nike's Vaporfly. Have you heard of Nike's Vaporfly? It's like it's like cutting-edge running shoe. It uh, uses 4% less energy than standard running shoes, and they actually um, there was an Olympic medalist who recently ran for the first time a marathon under two hours. And he, was, and he was wearing them. And that's, that's cool and all, but shoes like this won't dramatically increase running speed uh, ever. Uh, they, they aren't changing the physics of running. Uh, they will never match the best way that we've devised to increase running speed. Which, which way is that, guys? What's, what have we done? What did we create to dramatically increase, essentially, running speed? Meth.
0: <laughs> uh, no, the, the, lions, uh, tigers, the chase people.
5: The assist, they, they, I've seen the thing where now, like you have like a. I guess, no, I guess it's a little bit of a stretch, but the common bicycle. That's basically what, what a bicycle is doing. It's making you, you move your body a lot faster using just purely Bob, hu- that's human not power. Running? That's, that's what, that's, that's how these, these researchers equated. They compare, no, they compare that's it to a, a way question. to increase your, your running speed using just your, just nothing, nothing, no batteries, no technology. Just, I mean, just me- something mechanical so but isn't
1: that because the pre court cursor they they're, they're saying to the modern bike was a like a, a pedalless bike that you ran on
5: <laughs> really? Right. Yeah. Exactly. yeah like, a, like Fred Floyd Wheeled in his Hobby car Horse. Yes, I exactly. Exactly. No. The, first, it's the like... first bike the first bike was called the hobby horse. It had no pedals, it had no gears. Uh you could steer it by changing the direction of the front wheel. And that was the the, oh. the first the first bike the first bike uh bicycles were were four wheels really, but then the second generation was the two wheeler. And but even that did not increase your running speed. You know, it supported your weight and things like that. And helped you out of it, but you could not go fast in that. You could not but go that. But did it require less energy
0: to go the same speed? You would have a, gone a
5: little otherwise. bit less energy. But I'm, but I'm, Keep in mind, I'm talking about running fast. I don't give a shit about anything else in this context. <laughs> yeah, you brought up bicycles. know. I I that. no, no. I did bring up bicycles, and I did it for a really good reason because bicycles increase your ability to move faster than anything that's that's ever been designed. That that's purely that's human powered. So I why? Why huh. is that? Why? Why does a bike do that? Why does it offer that? You're here. You're giving metal to a person and saying, "Here, go faster, carrying this," and and it works. So, the, so some of these are obvious. The, you're, the wheels, because you're
2: you're not de- you're overcoming friction to to a huge degree, aren't
5: a, you? To a certain extent. There's three there's three big reasons. The the wheels obviously are huge. They give you uh, you have a rolling motion, right, with the wheels that prevents what they call collisional energy losses every time your foot impacts the ground, right? Every time your okay. foot hits. I mean, it's a jarring. It's, it's friction. It's going to slow you down to a certain extent, and then you push off, right, really fast. So the wheels help. The wheels also support your weight, which is really good because then, then uh, the, the body, if the bike is supporting your weight, then your legs can really just focus on moving fast and not supporting the actual body. So that's good. But the big thing, the most important thing about bikes that make them so awesome in making people move so fast is the pedals. It's all about the pedals because think about it they allow you to supply energy continuously instead of intermittently only when your leg is on the ground. So think about that when you run every time your your every time your leg pushes off the ground it does nothing for a while right? It lifts off the, you know, you kick yeah. off with one foot, it lifts off the ground and it, it extends back and up a little bit. And then you move it forward and then down until it hits the ground again. And then you push off. But all that time I just described, your leg is dead weight. You're, you're, it's, you're not, it's not doing anything for you. And the pedal takes that away. The pedal, you're, it's basically your, your foot's on the ground pushing all the time. Yeah, all the time. Constant, That's constant why. On the surface, right. Like, all the
0: time. So That's no why da- you can
4: go farther and faster on an elliptical than when you're running.
0: Probably. Same thing. You never take your right? foot
4: off. It's basically a large pedal. Right, and of right. course, there's no impact and blah blah blah. But when you add that right. all together, you it's, could ch- it's less energy to go the same speed.
5: Right, if you're right, as long as you do, if you can get rid of that dead that dead time yeah. where your feet are in the air, that's that's what makes the bike so good. So that that the take home is that's why bikes can move you so fast. It's because of the pedal. So so what else can you do though, besides a bicycle? Uh, what about the spring boot? Right, you've you've all seen these cool spring boots, right? would they, they have like a curved piece of metal on the bottom or some type of bouncy spring mechanism right and that increases your ability to to leap and your it increases your stride length and all that stuff and uh so you you would think oh that's that's got to be That's got to let you run really, really fast, too, or maybe in the future. But those aren't that great either because that type of foot gear certainly makes it easier and maybe more efficient uh, when you walk or run or leap, especially when you leap, because the spring absorbs some of the impact and then gives some of it back to you like a kangaroo. So Mm -hmm. it is helpful for making it a little bit more efficient. But the problem with springs, though, and it should be obvious, is that they they're still like natural running. You still have a very limited amount of contact time with the ground, and in right. fact, and in fact, with the spring boots, you have even less contact time overall um, to the, with the ground. So even if, so, you can't even run as fast with the spring boots than a, than and, and, than a really good runner, a you know, really well trained runner can. So, even, so about- even spring boots aren't that great.
4: What about those blades that amputees same thing. sometimes same, run on? Same, same thing. thing. Same thing. Exactly. Same So they yeah. can't run as fast. I always they thought they ran faster. No,
5: they can't. You can't run. It doesn't make you. Hmm. It doesn't necessarily make you faster at running. And then gotcha. this. This is what the focus is. How do you go? How, basically, when you ride a bike, your body is somehow tapping into this. This. This potential that lets you go. That lets you bike twice as fast as you run. So how can we tap into that potential? Without a bike, Uh, what other mechanism could do this? And this is what the researchers figured out, right? They wanted, they wanted, no, they, they (laughs) wanted, they wanted, they want to augment running that lets you contribute all the time, just like with the, with the bicycle pedals too. They wanted to have your legs being used to make you move fast as much as possible, not just when your foot hits the ground. Foot bikes. Foot bikes. Yes. David, David Braun. So David Braun worked with his students at the Vanderbilt Center. And uh, this is his quote, which 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 encapsulates um, how this works. Um, He said, using the robo boot, runners supply energy by compressing a spring with each leg while it's in the air. With each footstep, the spring releases its stored energy by pushing against the ground faster and stronger than the legs could otherwise do. So, in effect then, your leg would be creating the running energy and storing it in a special a variable stiffness spring while your leg is in the air, which would then be released by the spring when your foot hits the ground. So, these these springs um, then will offer many, many advantages uh, of the bike then. It supports – the springs could support the body. They could minimize that that collision energy as your, as your foot hits the ground. But most importantly, uh, like the pedals – they use leg energy for more than just when it touches the ground. So, so that's the idea. So, so going by their calculations, they show that if they could create an ideal robo boot, it would, it would allow some people to use their legs 96% of the time, uh, the step time they refer to it, 96% of the step time to actually run faster than 20 meters per second or 44 miles an hour, which is considered uh, the top speed in cycling. So you could, if you had an idealized version of this robo boot, you could run as fast as a top cyclist. Uh, is whats is what they're saying. But um, w- when you try to get more down to earth and more realistic, it's more like 60% of the step time would be utilized. But still, we're talking 18 meters per second, which is essentially 50% faster than Hussein Bolt in the 100 meter sprint. You would blow him out of the water, go twi- 50% faster than him uh, using this thing, even with, if it's only 60% efficient. So, and remember, this is all just human power. There's no engine, no batteries, no mini-fusion engines inside. This is just people power. Is this a concept
0: or is it an actual product?
5: Well, that's a good segue into, into what what we can expect to see from this. In the future, they hope to have a, the first RoboBoot prototype in about a year, which is actually better, oh, than, that's good. better than five to ten years. Um, yeah. So they'll so have it in a year, and of course, this will be like a version 1.0, and, uh, but who knows, You know, over the course of of uh, of many years like like bicycles have been developing since the 1800s and they are they have been sl- they've been increasingly improved 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 over each major uh, major change and i think we could see the same thing for this if this actually pans out so what could they be used for uh the researchers running? say that this this could be used for <laughs> yeah, yeah good idea uh, uh, search search and rescue who would be yeah who who would be running though search and rescue first responders Law enforcement, we may even see, Criminals. um, even in sports, Criminals. imagine that there could potentially be an Olympic, you know, an Olympic event that, that involves this type of thing where, oh, where wow. people are running crazy fast, you know, as fa- imagine running as fast <laughs> as a, as a top bicyclist. I mean, that is, that's, a, that's incredibly fast.
3: Um, well, that's, and, that's the one thing I was thinking about because at least with a bicycle, you have gyroscopic stability. Now I'm running right, two pogo sticks right, at 45 right. miles an hour.
5: <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, you won't have that. So, yeah, so if you fall, yeah, it's going to hurt. Definitely going to yeah. hurt. And can
4: your legs even handle the, those? I mean, is that's the difference that you just have a really long stride now or, no, or is it that you're no, doing the, the same is, stride just no, twice right. as fast?
5: Well, I, I mean, I think, your, I think your stride might be a little bit bigger, but the key is that the difference – I mean, if you're, but your, your body can handle it when you're riding a bike. I think you you can handle it using this me- this mechanism. It's not it's not like you're beyond sitting on a human- seat
4: when you're riding a bike, though. You're not sometimes. Like, yeah, I guess that's true. But also, a lot of times when people ride bikes, they're not pedaling consistently. They coast in between. Wow. That that
5: that's true. And there and there are there are interesting differences. But the the key difference with this with this robo boot is that you are generating the energy you need when your when your leg is in the air, and then as soon as yeah. your foot as soon as the spring hits the ground, blam! You get a, you get a huge push off. That you that you would not you could ne- never have gotten with just your legs because because your foot's in contact with the ground for just a fraction of a second and so you can't build up a lot of a lot of energy that way a lot of power I guess
3: is the I
4: more I just accurate see a lot word. of like broken ankles and like torn ACLs in the future well, yeah. of this or, device
3: yeah me too so well, I, mean, I, mean, I doubt it's like going to be as <laughs> ubiquitous as bicycles but it will be entertaining to see somebody <laughs> use it successfully and unsuccessfully oh those yes. YouTube videos will, well yeah. I think I came up with probably the way this year is going I have another use for for these things another. <laughs> oh, no.
5: Another potential future use of the Robo Boots could be running away from zombies, especially if they're the fast kind. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, exactly.
0: But
4: here's my thing, Bob. It's like, I feel like this has a little bit of like a weird purist vibe to it. Like, isn't something that's powered always going to be better? And like, I get it if you're talking about just running without technology. But if you're adding technology anyway, is there something like more important about it being mechanical and not battery powered or I just don't understand. Well then why why are bikes still
5: why are
0: bikes still doesn't require a power supply other
5: than once you have it that's it. You don't need anything else you don't need to you don't need to Yeah but we're not talking about I don't think
4: this is going to be ubiquitous. We're talking about like specialized people using it. So I'm pretty sure that cops if, if there was a difference between a powered boot that was even better and an unpowered boot that they would just use the powered boot.
5: Well, they, they I think the researchers envision that this would be like a, a, among the list of, of many different, you know, like robot wearables, robotic wearables that that could augment human okay. performance. And yeah, and who knows how this would fit in the ecosystem of powered systems? Uh, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, who knows? Oh, Can, yeah. Can't really, can't really predict right now. I just Here think you go, Bob. there's a, a niche idea. for everything.
3: There's a niche for everything because, like, New York City still has horsebacked policemen. And right. Yeah, despite yeah, there yeah. being motorcycles and cars. So there may be sure. some totally. niche where – It's just the idea that anybody would well. say
4: because it's a horse and it's not a car, it's somehow like more important or better. I, I didn't really and understand exactly. the because you kept driving home the idea that this is just human-powered. It's like so?
5: I mean, yeah. You well, know, like I said, bikes are just human-powered. And also think about the limitation, the biggest limitation of wearable – Powered systems is what? It's battery technology. And mm-hmm. battery technology, slow incremental change. Uh, this is something that's always going to be a problem. If you're going to go – if you want, you're going to go somewhere and you're going to need to move fast in a human-powered way because you're not going to have access to gas or or batteries or anything, then this would be something that you would you would definitely want to do because you don't need anything extra except – Except human power. You don't need so to, Bob, here, I, or I I'm whatever. already looking
0: I'm already looking twenty years into the future for this. You've got these for your legs. You build a you build an assembly for your arms as well that will also reach the ground and you can use all four of your limbs to get yourself <laughs> going on these things. You'll go you'd be cheetah speed at that point.
3: And the face plants will be extra special. Oh on yeah, they'll be great. All right. <laughs> you know, like yeah I mean covered, right? to
5: relearn yeah. how to run, I was thinking about that because th- that's one of the reasons why animals move so fast because they've got they've got double the amount of time where the yeah. foot is on the ground helping push off and that's one of the reasons why they, they can move so so much faster than people because we just have two legs they've got big four legs so four times the amount of surface interaction time I guess you would call it
1: yeah so it's like in the, it's in the concept stage not even in the prototype stage So definitely right. okay. keep an eye on it Let's, you know see yeah, if anything stay here. Yeah, it's one of those things that we may never hear of again. True, true. Uh, But yeah, interesting concepts Mm, behind it. Yeah. David, tell us about – this is a technology I'm actually extremely excited about, and it's very disappointing how uh, little support that they get. But tell us about using artificial intelligence to control small modular nuclear reactors.
3: All right. So this uh, initially started out of me as me reading a press release about uh, GE, Hitachi, and MIT getting a grant from the Department of Energy through a program called uh, Gemina, which is a sub-program under a broader program called ARPA-E. And our, the whole goal of this, these projects is to put investment into the energy infrastructure where there may not be incentive for private industry to do X, Y, or Z. It got started by the Bush administration and has been around ever since. Specifically, GE and MIT uh, got grants to make digital twins of the, what they call the BWRX300 reactor design. And that's a boiling water reactor based off of larger version of it, called the economic simplified boiling water reactor and what they want to do in this entire gemina project is figure out ways to make nuclear energy more cost efficient in terms of an operations and maintenance perspective so you have this big thermodynamic system you've got hot uh, often pressurized water that is moving through uh, metal pipes and going through pumps and going through valves that have mechanical seals and all this stuff, and there's all these things that you have to do to maintain that system to keep it operational uh, and to keep it safe. Normally, the way that things are done is you kind of just do routine checks, like every you know quarter you go to check the leak by on X Y Z, or you know double check the flow rate, or check the resistance across this instrument stuff like that. GE is going to use uh, what they're calling their humble AI project, which is AI that is given sort of the constraints of the real world. And ha- there's some way to uh, objectively determine if the AI is behaving uh, predictably, or if it's in sort of a context that it wouldn't perform optimally on. And if you detect it in that uh, it falls back to a more deterministic uh, sort of fallback procedure in terms of maintenance schedules or safety procedures or whatever. It's going back to the whole idea of, at least from my perspective, of trying to peer into the black box of AI. It says that you should do X. Why should I do X? Oh, this you're outside of your context. I'm just going to fall back to what we would normally do in this situation. Digital twin technology is them basically making very high accurate models, uh, physical models of this in computer simulation to be able to train these uh, AIs over time scales that couldn't be done in real life or in situations that wouldn't be safely or that you couldn't do safely in real life. I say that this started with me looking at this GE Press release. I then backed out and looked at the greater Gemini. Uh, project. And there's nine total uh, projects, two of which are kept between GE and MIT. And of those, five of the projects are doing digital twins. And two of uh, two of them are doing AI or machine learning integration. And then one is doing something really crazy, which is moving away from uh, sort of the Normal maintenance uh, concept of install it and then maintain it and do regular maintenance to keep it up. Going to a model instead where you replace and refurbish something, which is kind of a neat, interesting concept uh, that needs to pan out. But it's it's very interesting to me because when I was in uh, the nuclear navy, we didn't have we had computerized assistance, but for the most part, you still relied on the operator to be able to detect when there was some sort of plant condition that needed some sort of action. Pure automation from a computer standpoint was hard to accept in that industry because uh, if your computer was set up wrong, it could go off on a haywire angle. And then if you have one accident, you could ruin the entire nuclear industry. Or in the case of the nuclear Navy, if you have one accident on a nuclear uh, submarine, you could have the entire submarine fleet brought home all in the same day. So it's not desired to have any sort of accidents, and to trust, uh, or and to have your systems uh, trustworthy, and to have your people trained to properly operate everything. So uh, I'm really excited about this because AI does have the potential, I believe, to be able to detect things like, uh, say, you're watching the chemistry of your plant because steam systems and primary cooling systems have very tight pH uh, windows because it's hot water moving through metal pipes. And so corrosion gets accelerated like crazy. So maybe this AI will better predict when you need to adjust pH and how often and that will change through the lifetime of the plant. And as a result, you'll cut costs down while keeping the plant safe. Like that, that to me seems like a reasonable thing, but it's one of those things where it's sort of, you have all the cautions that you normally have with AI models. You have crap in, crap out, and general AI model design. But given the pedigree of the organizations, GE, who's been making nuclear reactors and systems like this for decades, and MIT, uh, who also has a pedigree of nuclear research, I'm really, I'm more excited than uh, cautiously optimistic about all this. Mm, so, wow, yep. Yeah. What's the and, timeline
4: look like for it?
3: Uh, I'm actually not too sure. Uh, the Gemina project uh, did make its formal press release on the 13th, and they do have uh, some uh, white paper releases about that, but I'm not sure about the tenure of these grants. It's $27 million total. Uh, again, GE and MIT got about $6.5 million, if I remember right. Then some general quick facts about small modular reactors. Yeah, I was
1: going to ask your opinion about them in general.
3: I'm really excited about them. So the particularly the boiling water reactor X 300, the way that GE designed it was they were trying to cut costs down. So this ESBWR that they had done has all these parts and components that have already been through uh, the NRC uh, sort of regulatory structure. So the control rod mechanisms, the pumps, you know, certain valves, all that stuff have already been certified. So they're basically reusing those because they already know they work. They're reducing... Uh, some of the costs by switching to a metal um, containment versus a concrete containment and they're shrinking it down. So these things take up 90% less space. It's 300 megawatts in in 10% of the space of 1.5 gigawatts. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> Jay, <laughs> I know,
1: I mean, there isn't a geek
2: alive that won't laugh when they hear that.
3: <laughs> and then um, they're designed to be what, utilize what's called passive safety. Uh, in fact, the IAEA has a small modular reactor book that you can download that has 50 of these designs. And if you control F for the little part of the Excel sheet that says like what safety systems I use, pretty much every single one of them use passive safety. And that means literally every operator could walk out of the room and the reactor would either shut itself down or operate safely uh, agnostic mm. to, uh, 100. operator error. So in particular, wow. the boiler water reactor design is natural circulation driven. Uh, so there's no forced, uh, circulation. There's no pumps needed to operate the reactor. Yeah. So, uh, so
1: Homer Simpson could work at this reactor is what you're
3: thinking. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Totally. And again, it's like, it's 300 megawatts in 10% of the space. It's also much cheaper. They're trying to get under a particular capital cost bar that makes them competitive with, uh, natural gas. And then they're trying to get, Hmm. again, under a cost per kilowatt hour operational uh, to compete with natural gas, uh, as well as other renewables. Um, But if this all excites you, you should definitely still uh, get in touch with your congressman, because this overall project, RPE, uh, they have a line-by-line budget that's put out by the Department of Energy. And while they there is money being allocated to this kind of research. Overall funding for these sort of researches into grid technology have uh, been uh, cut and disproportionately away from renewables and nuclear. If you if you have time and you're excited about this kind of research, uh, please uh, get, take some time, write your congressman about that kind of thing. Because these small modular reactors are really cool and could really innovate the nuclear field. And what's the byproduct? The byproduct you mean the uh, is...
0: Yeah, waste. I'm sorry, waste product.
3: That's actually something that I got excited about. I saw $90 uh, million allocated to nuclear waste handling in the most recent Department of Energy uh, budget request, which was kind of exciting. But uh, it will produce some amount of waste. I'm not pretty clear on the details. Some reactors have waste that can be reprocessed and reused. Yeah. Uh, some, especially the ones that were designed to develop plutonium, produce a lot of waste, uh, but that, cu- that waste could be used by other reactor designs. There's a whole separate conversation about that that could take for quite a bit of time. Yeah, yeah.
1: Just very, very quick. I've been reading a lot about that as well. There are, there are cycles that they're experimenting with, nuclear cycles, where basically – again, there's no difference between nuclear waste and nuclear fuel. It's really that's – a, that's a relative designation. There's nothing diff- – the only difference is what we can burn, right? If you can burn it, it's fuel. If you can't, it's waste. So it all depends on what we can do. And so these newer reactors are definitely able to burn more thoroughly through the fuel and leave less waste. And with reprocessing, they have reprocessing cycles, at least on paper now. Take the now, waste and use it. That can, that can take all of the long-term uh, products, ones that take a million years, you know, half-life, and, yep. and get rid of them, basically, and burn them so that you're left with only the ones that last for hundreds of years, you know, yep. not, not millions of years. So it's a complete game-changer in terms of nuclear waste. Oh, God, yeah. But yep. uh, but we got to do it. Yeah, you know, we just got to do it.
3: Yep. And to you give you some perspective, you as I mentioned before, we have 66 submarines uh, by my last lookup active in the U.S. Navy. Um, those submarines have reactors that are on the order of 200 some megawatts. So we have 66 of those all around the world. I don't know how many civilian plants are still operational, but as I understand it, I think it's less than the number of military deployed ones. The military-deployed ones we send to other countries, sometimes friendly, sometimes not friendly, and we let them tool around, not necessarily saying that we're there. Uh, we're comfortable with that at the government level, and I think we, should, we could be more comfortable with that uh, in our own backyard if we're willing to put a nuclear reactor in, say, an ally's you know, port.
2: All right, Jay, it's Who's That Noisy time. All right, last week I played this noisy.
4: don't you not, don't, you take, don't you do anything to my phone, Dixie? Dixie, Dixie,
2: Dixie. All right, so I got like so many responses. Like it was really, it was really fun. This one, so many people got right, just like last week. I definitely need to turn up the uh, the, the difficulty starting after this one. So, guys. Yeah. Do you, any of you have a guess before I go into the uh, emails?
0: Sounds like a dog took someone's phone and ran
4: away with it. It sounds like an animal. Well, report, I don't know if it was a dog. It was a panting wanna, into animal or something. I, yeah, I want to guess. A
3: fox. Yeah, the chortling makes it sound like it's a fox. <laughs> well, uh, a listener named Dan B guessed that sounds like a
2: monkey that took off with a kid's smartphone. <laughs> and monkey uh, phone. yeah, so you're you're in the right phylum. But that is not that is not correct. Uh-huh. Sarah Nash wrote in, Jay. Hi, um, I am Maggie, age eleven. I love your show. I think the noisy from last podcast was a dog named Daisy who was running from their owner with their phone in its mouth while their owner yelled, "Daisy, don't eat my phone! <laughs> don't you hurt my dog?" Maggie, that is not correct. Uh, yeah. But thank you for writing in. You're closer. This thing is definitely more more like a dog than it is like a monkey. So Daisy. the winner from last week is uh, the winner is Bill. Wolverton, Bill said, "Pet fox steals girl's iPhone while it's recording and runs away from girl with it." That's what he wrote. It's
4: a pet because she's named Fox. Yeah. Is that? Is it a Russian fox?
0: Oh, we just talk about Russian foxes. Yay, that's so
4: cool. Yeah, they promote to keep the best pets.
2: So the founder of Save a Fox Rescue set her phone on the ground against a barrel to film a yoga video, and her pet fox took the phone in its mouth and ran away. Now you can hear Dixie the fox laughing. Literally laughing at her. Listen to this What? <laughs> he's, he's excited. What? The fox the fox or oh, she's excited. The fox is definitely excited and knew that it was doing something naughty. <laughs> which is adorable. <laughs> which is adorable. Uh I and, you love know the, her. and this this fox is uh you know, trained and raised and all that, but you know, it's still a wild animal. They're not domesticated. No.
4: Well, they are, if this is from the Russian foxes. So yeah, I wouldn't come come say with that foxes. Yeah, it's is right. it, Fox is it, is it, it one of the Russian? It might it's not a, be, but a lot of quote pet foxes do come from that experiment. Yeah. Okay. Don't so, they cost yeah. like twenty grand or something? You could buy. They're one? expensive, wow. and they pee themselves constantly because they're so you know, excited to have people. Yeah, um, yeah, but so yeah, control yes. it.
1: So did my puppy. What you know? I had a miniature, long-haired Dachshund. Who, Murray, mm, I miss yeah, Murray. Took yeah, three Murray years awesome. to potty train, and then even then had happy pee whenever he got excited. Yeah, especially, that's the thing. Especially
4: so, when he saw me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some dogs have that. Apparently, like the vast majority of the Russian foxes have that. Yeah, because it's good. just one of those things that because it was a forced evolution. Yeah. It's like close enough to the to the genes or the alleles that it's it's what I guess very domestic animals do. <laughs> They're just too excited.
2: That's nutty. Uh Bloody so prince. that was said the original uh the original Who's That Noisy was sent in by Christina Lin. So Christina, thank you. This was a lot of fun. The the fox is adorable. And thus ends my adorable animal series. (laughs) I had a mini adorable animal series. I have a new noisy for you guys this week. This was a noisy that was sent in by a listener named Damien Van Schneidel. God, it, don't be mad. Yeah, if I don't don't say your last name correctly, this one is really cool. So this is one of those noisies. I'm warning you right now. It's a little sharp. Uh, You might call it loud. It's a little harsh. Yeah, it's a little harsh. Throttle back. Ready? And here we go. All right, so before the jokes come out, I'll say my own joke. That's the noise that happens before I fart in the house. Ha-ha. Hi-yo. Didn't see that there one, you go. Seven. So what I'd like you to do is, 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 with as much information as you can, tell me what's happening in this sound. What is this associated with? What's happening? What's going on? And please email me at wtn at skepticsguide.org if you heard something cool this week or if you think you know the answer. And Steve, did you know, Steve, that there's multiple things going on all at the same time around the world? Sure. Right? So one one of those (laughs) things is nexus, N-E-C-S-S dot org. We're doing a live streaming conference this year because... Oh, you know, the pandemic came to town, came everywhere, and we had to. Uh, we did not want to not have Nexus, so we decided to do a live stream. We have the list of speakers is almost complete. I will begin the marketing probably tomorrow. It will be on Facebook and other instant, uh, another social media. If you're interested, and I'll, I will give a full announcement next week of everything. We're doing great. I had a, a technology meeting with Ian today. The green screen is working, and everything Whoa. is looking good. That's yes. good to know. Yes, things are things are good. We really know what we're doing this time. Oh boy,
0: the said this screen. time. <laughs> yeah, the green screen. I, is green.
1: <laughs> I hope you're not setting us up there, Jay. All right, we're going to do one quick email. This one comes from Gary Candido, and Gary writes: Could you please talk about this MIT PhD that has been spreading misinformation about COVID? Uh, this is the description to his latest Facebook Live. Dr. Shiva Live, hydroxychloroquine, how it works, benefits, and side effects. Dr. Shiva Ayadurai, MIT, PhD in biological engineering, the inventor of email, world-renowned what? systems biologist, innovator, scientist, will share the molecular systems biology of hydroxychloroquine on how it works, its benefits, and side effects. Right. Wait, this guy right? Claims He invented email? That he invented email. So I had to check that. Claim out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you guys think? Do you guys no. know that Dr. – Low probability of that. Is I, I would say uh, not,
0: we, not any one – how do you nail it down to one person? Tell Doesn't me the name like again. An organization? It just, it just
2: reminds me of Dr. Evil saying his father invented the question mark. The question <laughs> Dr. Shiva Ayadurai. It's BS, right? It's total BS. So
1: he claims that when he was 14 in 1978, he invented email. He wrote a email – Messaging system that was email. Wait, what? So it's just it's complete. So he did do that. He when he was fourteen, he did write an email program, but he didn't invent email. Email predated that. You know, it goes back to the nineteen sixties, uh, and it's very well documented. You know, the 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 history of email. It's all there. The person who is most credited with it is Ray Tomlinson, who came up with the at symbol, the idea that you have a person at a location. You know what I mean? And all the ma- elements that make up email were all in place, you know, by 1975. Before this guy Shiva wrote his pro- is you know program in 1978. So he didn't invent email. He actually sued people who he sued uh, Techdirt for for pointing out that that's not true, that he did not invent email. And he lost that lawsuit. And how the did judge, he lose? How did he lose? Yeah. What do you mean, how did he lose? Because he didn't freaking invent email. Right. I
5: can, can you see that case? <laughs> the, the judge's like, oh, wait. Oh, wait. Let me check. Let me Google it. Oh, no, you didn't invent it. You lose. Yeah, right. That's basically
1: it. It's like you, know, you can't <laughs> prove that what they're saying is wrong, basically. The judge didn't say you didn't invent email. He just said you can't prove that what these people – Saying that you didn't invent email are wrong. That's kind of the, you know, it was what they all they had to do. And it, it, whatever. It was also just, it was their free speech and everything. Yeah, just ridiculous. So, you know, right there is credibility is in the toilet, right? If you're like, for, you know claiming you invented email when you didn't it's just ridiculous but i watched this video that he's talking about and he's just going over the potential molecular mechanisms of hydroxychloroquine which here's the thing this is like the typical basic science researcher mistake is that they think because they understand something at a basic level they could make clinical claims about it and you can't because how it might work on a biological systems you know, perspective doesn't tell you if it actually works clinically. You need clinical evidence to tell you that, and the clinical evidence is negative. So this guy is like a Dunning Kruger, you know, all over the place. This is this this is what happens when you have a. This is where we talk about the um, the Nobel Prize syndrome. You know, if you have yeah. c- credentials in one area, and then you, your ego is just unchained, right? Line is and you there. think. Line
5: is falling. Yeah, Linus Pauling is a good
1: example of it. And so, of course, you know, I get most annoyed when the the non clinicians make clinical claims based upon their non clinical knowledge. And they always embarrass themselves, like this guy is, because they're just, they have no idea how to evaluate clinical evidence because it's different. I don't care if you, if we have some data about a potential mechanism, it doesn't, it, that, it, all it does is make it plausible. It means that we should study it clinically, which is what, what you know all the experts, including myself, were saying about it months ago. It was like, yeah, it's plausible. We should test it. It's been tested. It, does, it turns out, at least the evidence we have so far, is really negative, which means it's very unlikely that there's a significant clinical effect that's being missed by this preliminary evidence. But he doesn't know how to think about the clinical evidence because that's, that's not his expertise. But, uh, yeah, the whole inventing email thing is like the icing on the cake. All right, let's move on to Science or Fiction.
3: It's time for Science or Fiction.
1: Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. The no. theme is based upon my latest pandemic hobby: baking bread.
4: Oh God! It's all nice. about bread. <laughs> bread, bread. Come on, you guys! All eat about bread? bread. We love, we bread. love bread. Oh my yeah. gosh! I have had it. Yep. I've you've had ate bread. it
3: once, so I'm an expert about it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had it with
5: these questions, Kara. <laughs> I've made uh, wow.
1: so I made another loaf of the uh, the sourdough It tasted great. It didn't really. It was kind of flat because I didn't have the right kind of pot to put it in. Yeah. Um, and then I yeah, made. That's t- why. That was <laughs> <laughs> no, true. It it, ro- it it rose nicely. It was very fluffy, but it just was, you know, because you it's soft. The sourdough is very wet, so it will it will flatten out like a pancake if you don't keep it in a Dutch oven, which I don't have. So no, anyway, you got
4: to get a Dutch oven; they're mm. the best.
1: I know, I know, I need to get one. And then uh, so today I made just regular Italian bread um, I, using yeast. It, God, it's so much easier you know <laughs> yeah, <use> right. <laughs> and honestly it's
4: in some ways more useful although you can do a lot with sourdough starter like sourdough is a very particular taste
1: yeah which i like and it was very it tasted mm-hmm. great so and that came it, but <laughs> it, the, uh, the the bed, the bread i baked today came out really good we had some one of the two loaves for dinner it was great
2: but so you made italian bread i
1: mean how good did it come out it was great it was it was perfect you know it tasted like any italian bread you've ever had but um, the thing is, though, the the crust was pale. It didn't turn like this golden brown. So mm. I so now um, I'm troubleshooting how to fix that. And I've read some things like you had, like I didn't I didn't wash the top of it with anything. And some to say yeah, you could oh, like put water basting. on it or milk yeah. or yeah, whatever to make it or and that egg will wash, brown. Yeah. So next time I'll yeah egg. Um. Uh, yeah. So those are the three I read about: water, milk, or egg. And they said it depends on what you want, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But next time I'll try it with a wash and see if I can get the outer side, mm. side to, to look a little bit more golden brown. So we'll see. it beautiful. It's a whole technology skill set unto itself, you know. So you just have to really just do it and and figure it out as you go along. Baking
4: um, is science, like it's yeah. like oh, basic yeah. lab oh, food science. Food science? Are you kidding? But baking specifically, yeah. it's like a lot of the same skills that you learn when you're learning to do wet lab work.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing is, like, the thing, you know, I follow recipes no problem, but this is more than following a recipe because there are some skills involved, you know, mm-hmm. with it as yeah. well. A lot of it is, I think, the experience of doing it. Anyway, so for all of those reasons, we're talking about bread. So are you guys ready to hear the three items? Let's do it. Yep. All right, number one, the U.S. government banned pre-sliced bread in 1943, but the ban lasted only several months due to widespread widespread protest. Item number two, in the U.S., some products sold as wheat bread are just white bread dyed brown with caramel coloring. And item number three, a baker's dozen is 13 originally as a marketing ploy, as 13 is prime and cannot be easily divided, encouraging purchase of the full dozen. All right, David. As our guest, you have the distinct honor of going first—the coveted first position. <laughs> it is indeed an
3: honor, um, <laughs> and I will try to do my best uh, based on all the times I critique you from my armchair, <laughs> to, doing poorly. Uh, so, the first item about the U.S. government banning pre-sliced bread in 1943, but it obviously not lasting long because that's super convenient. That seems plausible, just because I'm. Kind of curious as to whether or not the U.S. government did it at like a federal level or a state level or something like that. And I could easily see like some.
1: No, it was, just, it was just clarify that. I'll clarify that it was the federal government, that the U.S. The federal government. government. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the federal Got
3: government, it. and that's around World War II era. So maybe it was it, it was a uh, a rationing thing, and the fact that it was uh, sliced as sort of. An arbitrary metric, who knows? Uh, going on to some products sold as wheat bread are just white bread dyed brown with caramel coloring. That sounds compelling because of standard narratives about how well, obviously somebody's doing that, but who knows? Uh, and then a Baker Studios and 13 originally as a marketing ploy, as uh, 13 is prime number, and cannot easily divide, encouraging more consumption. I believe that more because of. Uh, you know, it seems like somebody or something that would be happened upon accidentally and then would turn into a marketing strategy where somebody started selling a baker's dozen noticed that they were selling more volume and then they sort of worked backwards and figured out the process. I'm going to go with number two, just because as being the fiction, because I think the USDA or somebody else has some specific rules about what can and can't be called wheat bread, quote unquote, and that you can't depart from those without potentially getting in trouble with them. So number two – or sorry, the wheat bread that's just died that way I, I believe is a fiction.
5: Okay, Bob. Let's see. The uh, The precise bread makes sense that that could just be a uh, money-saving during World War II – um, number three, the baker's dozen. Yeah, I can go either way with this one. Um, I can make sense at a lot of different angles. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna agree and say that uh, that number two, that the uh, the wheat, the wheat bread. I, yeah, I, at first I was thinking that's exactly what those scumbags would do because uh, because there's so much because there's, there's, there's so much false advertising and that kind of stuff. You know, even whole wheat. You know, it isn't necessarily as healthful as you as you think it be as you think it is. You know. Uh, and, and they are strict. I think they're very strict. And I, I don't think you could say uh, wheat bread if it's just white with a little dye. I think there might be something critical that would need to be beyond just the, the caramel colors. I'll say that's fiction as well.
1: All righty, Evan.
0: Well, for a lot of the same reasons already expressed, I'm going to join the guys and agree that the wheat bread one is the fiction. I don't think you can get away with calling something wheat bread unless there's actually some some percentage of wheat in there and yeah nineteen forty three about uh that one banning it, yep world War two right in the middle of it there all so, there were all sorts of uh rules about rationing and what you can and can't do so that I can't you know easy to easy to believe that that's part of that and then the baker's dozen uh marketing ploy a uh, yes, I absolutely believe that that's right, so I'm with the guys so far
2: all righty, Jay am I the last one No, no I you forgot be
4: last. I exist Thanks, um, Jay. I don't know.
2: Sometimes, <laughs> Bob, sometimes Bob sounds like you.
4: Uh, <laughs> ah, yeah. All right. So, slice the,
2: the slice bread ban during the war. I I believe that is science. I have a little trickle in the back of my head of what the reasoning was. I'll move on. <laughs> oh, oh my God! I, oh, the next the one here. Yeah. The 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 wheat bread being sold as actually you know healthy bread. That that has a lot of fiber in it and whatnot. I completely think that one is science. That that is the truth. Um, you would be amazed at what we we can be lied to about with the labeling and marketing. You know, they call it wheat bread. Well, what does that actually mean? What the freak does wheat bread actually mean? You know, so it all comes down to what the rules are and what they can get away with. So I think that is science. I absolutely do not think that a baker's dozen had anything to do with as a marketing ploy here. And if the 13 is a prime and cannot be easily divided, nope. I don't believe that. This one is a fiction.
1: Okay, so Jay's going to break from the group. Interesting. Alright, Kara, you're, you're, you're last.
4: I'm with Jay. Then that's exactly what I was thinking. I think that wheat bread, just in and of itself, I would not be surprised if this is bleached flour that then is redyed <laughs> to look like it wasn't bleached flour. And I don't think wheat means anything. It's not a regulated term. The bread ban one I still don't get, so I'm excited to hear the story, but it seems like it could have happened. I don't know if it had something to do with the war or rationing or if it was more likely like the extra step of slicing it. There was some sort of like outbreak, like somebody got sick or something, so they thought, okay, if we ban slicing it, people won't get sick. I don't know. But yeah, maybe it's just easier for people, so they got mad about that. I can't believe there would be widespread protests, but that's hilarious. But I guess it's true. And then the baker's dozen one – I guess the wives tale that I always thought was that if there's just like extra that you can't make into another pack of 12, that bakers would throw them in as a bonus or something like that. And that's where it came from. Um, It's probably not any of these things, but I feel like your explanation as a marketing ploy specifically with it being prime is like too specific. So I bet you it's something different. So I'm going with Jay.
1: All righty. So let's start with number one, since that's one you all agree with. The U.S. government banned pre sliced bread in 1943, but the ban lasted only several months due to widespread protest. You guys all think this one is science, and this one is science. Steve, can I take Yay. a guess?
0: Yes. Again? Why they
1: were banned? <laughs> yeah, now, you know, Steve, you know it I love. It wasn't passive
2: aggressive at all. You know I love bread. Yes, I do. And I, I've come to realize that in these certain pockets, I have- Bread pockets. I have good knowledge on certain things in certain pockets. Does this have to do with the wrapper on the bread and not yes, the bread itself? Okay. you're correct. Whoa, what the hell? So they're actually-
4: Wrap it. Wrap right.
1: so, All right. You're correct, Jay. So sliced bread started around 1928, pre-sliced bread, and it was a – and it was a great thing. That's where the term that's the greatest thing since sliced bread comes from because it was a huge time saver. It was it a really hit. It was. It was a hit. Right. It was absolute hit and it became – within a couple of years, 80 percent of bread sold on the market was pre-sliced. It was just Really popular, but some somebody and it's hard to know who because it was so unpopular that nobody would take credit for it. <laughs> At the federal government decided to ban it. It was a World War II thing. I told you, so David, oh, okay. you were correct to key in yeah. on that. So they were, you know, experimenting with a lot of things in World War II, and so the, the paraffin and the wax wrapping around bread. You need about twice as much for sliced bread as for reg- for not sliced bread to keep the sliced bread from drying out.
4: Oh right! And so like, this wasn't like plastic era. No. Yeah, it's, they were it was wrapping paraffin wrapping paper. Oh, wow. Wow.
1: And so they they wanted to save paraffin by banning the sliced bread, so that you could use less of it. It actually didn't even work. Even for that thing, it didn't work. But uh, they didn't save. It saved very very little paraffin. Uh, but also, the idea was that um, they wanted the baker bakeries to not raise their prices, and so it was a ploy to keep the price of bread down. So that because that was regulated, but they were sort of charging a vig for the slicing and they wanted to get rid of that so that the price would be kept down. But actually, it didn't really work there either. The thing that probably ended it was a letter to the editor to the New York Times on January 26th. This was from Sue Forrester of Fairfield, Connecticut. Yeah, Sue. Yeah. And (laughs) she was (laughs) complaining on the behalf of the country's housewives. So that was the sign of the times there, Kara. And yep. she basically was like, do you know how much freaking time I waste every day slicing bread? Are you kidding me? Plus, <laughs> you know how hard it is to get a good bread knife in the middle of this war, you know? Yeah. Which, was a, which was a legit point that no one had thought yeah, of. So they, precious, so yeah, it only lasted a few months. It was so, it was massively unpopular. They got rid of it and nobody could even, would take credit for even doing it in the first place. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> Wasn't All right. so that's awesome. Let's move to number two in the u s Some products sold as wheat bread are just white bread dyed brown with caramel coloring, so Jay and Kara think this one is science that yep some companies would actually do that. The rest of the guys think that their regulations would have to keep companies from doing this, and this one is science I know it mm. good job Jane yeah.
5: yeah yeah
1: so the key word that's missing there and this is all true they do it they they uh they dye the flower brown with it's caramel the whole coloring beach, Steve is it's it whole wheat it's got it and it's got that's
3: the regulated term isn't it's it? got to be
1: in the it's actually really you have to look at the every reference i said said you have to look at the ingredients so if it's it, in the first couple of ingredients you it needs to be some whole grain yeah and it right it has to say whole wheat or whole whatever the grain is that it is whole oat or rye or whatever if it doesn't say that in the first like if it's too far down that means they threw a little bit in there. It's got to be one of the top ingredients. Then you're not really getting whole wheat bread or whole grain. So bread. if you
2: ever see like if it says country bread or honey yeah. bread, that's bullshit. That yeah. that is not and the reason why I know this is because since I uh my wife and I got together, she really got me to read food labels. Yeah. Cuz she wants to, she wanted me to avoid um you know what do you trans call it? Trans fats and shit. Trans yeah. fats, and you could, and you would be amazed, and and what foods? It's actually like I think the list is going down a little bit now because food companies are are starting. You to. Aren't
4: trans fats banned?
2: Yeah, some but, some places. Yeah, okay. but so, I, but it's still, now I'm like you know after doing this for so long, I'm just like I inherently do it, and I notice like man, there's no difference between this loaf of bread, <laughs> yeah, and Wonder Bread. <laughs> there's no difference. Yeah, it's, the it's same pretty exact amazing. Thing.
4: Sometimes do, you. you- you you check like a like a cereal brand that's like like health oriented, and you're like this has the same amount of sugar as Lucky Charms. Yeah, 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 exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. What? It's all marketing. Yeah. It's all yeah. marketing.
1: Yeah. So yeah, be so watch out for that. But there are some breads out there that are whole grains. I like the whole grain breads myself. Do, so I'm. Yeah. Once
2: you make I, the switch, once you switch over, it, it tastes so much better.
4: It's just a it better does. bread. Yeah.
1: Yeah, all the I like whole wheat everything. I like wheat pasta, whole you know,
3: I like it all.
4: Yeah, yeah now you've it's gone good. too it's far. Hearty. My it's hearty. No, it's got I more still, of a depth of flavor. I yeah, agree. absolutely. I
3: still love wonder bread nostalgia trips every once in a while <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: I mean
1: white bread's fine. I remember sometimes seeing like the the brown bread and thinking, God, this is not freaking whole grain bread. This is, you know, It's brown, but what is this? This is like white bread.
2: (laughs) Steve, can I guess the last one? Because this is the one I really think I know. Yes, but let me read it. A baker's
1: dozen is 13. Originally, as a marketing employee, 13 is prime. It cannot be easily divided, encouraging purchase of the full dozen. That is fiction. I completely made that up. So what is the real reason, Jay? So
2: this this has everything to do with medieval bakers not wanting to break the law or or get in trouble because – there was something about like the loaf size. You know You know how like today when the cereal – you go buy a box of cereal and you're like, did I get bigger or did this cereal box actually get smaller, right? You ever have that yeah. happen to you? I mean, the cereal boxes are thinner. The they're, they're thinner today than they were. So they're, they're ripping you off but by you like –
0: less product.
2: Yeah, less, less product. Pro- about 20% less product for the same price. So th- this is what was happening back then is that people were – bakers were making loaves of bread smaller. And then saying, here's a, here's a dozen loaves of bread. And it's like, yeah, but but this is the equivalent of three loaves of bread. You know what I mean? So what they would do is they would give you 13 loaves of bread um, instead of 12 saying, I'm giving you an extra loaf of bread uh, just to, to make sure that they're giving you enough bread so they don't get in trouble. Is that correct? So you're close.
1: Yeah. So it was in medieval England when this rule came out. And essentially to prevent bakers from shortchanging their customers – they were um, statutes that regulated the weight of the bread being mm, sold. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you like a dozen rolls or a dozen loaves had to weigh a certain amount, and if it weighed less than that, you could be fined. So, but of course, there's variability, you know, in exactly how big and how much things weigh. There's yeah, did things they have
4: scales different. in medieval? Like, was every baker using yeah, scale. had scales? Yeah, they had scales. So, it seems like it would be expensive. Did it though, weigh as much know. as a duck? So,
1: the, so yeah, exactly, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Like a, yeah, right. Like right. A standard so if you using. if you threw in an extra, an extra whatever loaf for roll, that was a hedge against coming in just under the weight. Right. Yeah. Right. So just a big. That so that, that's a way for the baker to make sure they don't get fined because they're over the weight of a dozen because they threw in an extra in case a couple of their loaves were a little light. Uh, And it's not necessarily 13. It could be 14. It could be 15. Although, you know, usually it's 13.
2: Well, like Uh, sliced bread, people took that really seriously. You know, it was a big deal. Because, you know, today, you know, for most people, a couple of slices of bread out of a loaf is not that big of a deal. People, you know, I complain Uh, about cereal. that was life. That was life. That was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Apparently, this uh, started with, in 1266, Henry III revived an ancient statute
2: regulating the price of bread. So, that's that, where it that, goes back to. Now how cool is that that it, it, the this idea of a baker's dozen lasted it's in our it's in yeah. our what do you call it Steve the unconscious
1: vernacular yeah it's like yeah. almost 800 years later there it's still there. Yep. There were some other cool things when I was researching this. So you know the word for lord and lady mean bread. So a lord was yeah. like the bread ward and the a lady was the bread maker. That's what those words derive from hmm, in old English.
4: Oh. Yeah. Wait, so she made the bread and he just like her preside, presided made the bread over the bread. and oh. he distributed the bread. All Steve, right. you
2: want to know you want to hear something that's even cooler than that? Yeah. <laughs> Kara and I won this week. Kara, high five. days. Yeah. yeah good job, guys. <laughs> All right, Evan, give us a quote.
0: So before I give you the quote, I just wanted to give a little shout out because I was featured on another podcast. Called the TWA Family Hour podcast. TWA stands for the Word Alive. The Word Alive is a uh, band, a metalcore band, one of uh, my daughter Rachel's favorite bands. We went to see them. They performed in New Haven. This was back uh, pre-COVID, uh, just before it all happened. And as part of the experience, we were uh, we got a meet and greet with them. Which turned out to be a podcast. They started this podcast, you know, just just recently, just shortly after that, it turned into you know, skeptic's guide meets uh, meets metal music kind of uh, kind of show. And they they did a really nice uh, nice thing in which they have uh, titled the episode in New Haven, Connecticut, with Evan from the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. So that, that was very nice of them to promote that for us. Thank you. We will promote you, our friends at the Word Alive, Zach, Tony, Telly, and Matt. Thank you so much, and you should check them out as well, The Word Alive and the TWA Family Hour podcast. And now, the quote. Mathematical science shows what is. It is the language of unseen relations between things. But to use and apply that language, we must be able to fully appreciate, to feel, to seize the unseen, the unconscious. And that was written by Ada Lovelace.
1: One of our forgotten superheroes, as yeah, well, yeah,
0: definitely. Awesome. We're talking, her, you know, she was born in 1815, died in 1852, was an English mathematician and writer. She was chiefly known for her work on Charles Babbage's proposed mechanical general purpose computer, the analytical engine. She's widely regarded as the first to recognize the full potential of computers and yep. one of the first computer programmers. Mm-hmm. Huge. So cool,
1: that is amazing. You know, when you think about it, there was. You know, like something like a computer in the 1800s.
0: Right, just even the, the idea of a computer in the yeah. 1800s. I mean, you know, beyond an abacus is just remarkable.
4: Yeah. And also that a woman was the one who, like in a time when women could do very little mm-hmm. in society that, you know, quote unquote, were man's uh, roles. I mean, that's like a really, really big deal.
5: Right, and beyond that, what always impressed me is that she saw the implications of 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 what the technology could could potentially accomplish before uh, pretty much everybody would love to bring
1: her thinking. to the modern day and have her oh, see
5: what be has like, become ofabbage what she would right what <laughs> would it. she what would she do <laughs> yes
0: in the 21st century oh my gosh she she'd be so happy and she would blossom even even more
3: so
2: hey david i want to thank you so much for being a patron of the sgu we really appreciate it
3: Yeah, it's definitely an honor to come on the show. If I can, real quick, I'll uh, give a quick shout-out to a couple of my skeptical heroes. My mom and dad, my dad mainly because he got me skeptical by telling me that I wouldn't be able to drive until I was 35. Um, My husband, uh, Mikey Campion, who's, uh, you know, uh, love him to death. And uh, one of my favorite professors, Liz Bradley, over at the University of Colorado Boulder. Really, really great professor uh, in the computer science department out there. Awesome.
1: Well, it's been great Fantastic. having you on the show, David. Thanks for Thanks. doing this. This was fun,
3: David. Yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun for me, good too. Good job, man. Great. great yeah, good you awesome.
1: job. And thank the rest of you for joining me again this week. Thanks, Doc. Thanks, Doc. You got good. it, man. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU
3: possible.